Some complications are so common that we overlook them. The lack of sleep in the ICU is a potent example. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Randall Fries. Dr. Fries is Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. He is also Medical Director of the Nutrition Support Service at Parkland Memorial Hospital. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Fries. Thank you. I'm happy to participate. Now, how common is sleep deprivation in the ICU? Well, it is very common. I think it's probably the rule rather than the exception. Most people aren't sleeping in the ICU at all. Mm-hmm. And what contributes to this sleep loss? Well, that's a great question. Usually, in the way I look at it, there are two major components contributing to the sleep loss, and that would be the patient's pathologic processes themselves that brought them to the intensive care unit, and also the environment of the intensive care unit itself. I call it a hostile environment. Hostile environment. Hostile hospital. Well, when, you know, when it comes to trying to sleep, it's hostile. There's a lot of noise. There's continuously light. There's always some sort of interaction that's going on between a health giver and the patient themselves. It's not a very conducive environment to sleep. And what happens? What are the consequences of all this sleep deprivation? A lot of research on sleep deprivation is done on normal, healthy people that volunteer for research. And those studies clearly show the severe consequences to immune function. Our body's immune response is severely dysfunctional with even just a few hours or one night's worth of sleep deprivation. And other things like nitrogen balance are also severely affected. If you have acute sleep deprivation, it's almost as if you respond as if you're starving. Your protein catabolism is increased, and you go into negative nitrogen balance. So here we have our most critically ill patients that are struggling to survive anyway, and we may be making them worse. That's exactly true. These patients are having a stimulus to have these dysfunctional responses anyway. They have infections and things that cause their immune systems to be challenged, and then here we are putting another stimulus on them to make the immune system not work properly or cause them to have a protein loss when they should be, you know, hopefully uh, anabolic and creating more protein. Now, you recently published a study on this. Tell us about it. Yes, our study was a small study. We looked at patients in our own ICU at Parkland Hospital. Our surgical ICU is an acute care setting with mostly trauma patients and those patients undergoing emergency surgeries. We have a small number of patients undergoing elective surgeries. But we looked at 24-hour polysomnography, and polysomnography is a way to measure how well is someone sleeping in the patients in the ICU, and we demonstrated that their architecture is highly abnormal. In fact, they slept over a 24-hour period about eight hours on average, but again, remember, that's over 24 hours. You and I sleep eight hours continuously. So these patients had interrupted sleep and highly abnormal architecture. And what happens to the sleep architecture? How does it change other than clearly being fragmented? Well, there are two states of sleep. There's REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep and non-REM sleep or, of course, non-rapid eye movement sleep. And the non-REM sleep is divided into four different stages. We sleep in cycles throughout a period of sleep. Usually, for most of us, it's nighttime. So we'll go through about four to five 90-minute cycles of sleep and we rotate through each of those states and stages progressively. There's a significant amount of time of stage two and REM sleep or most normal sleep, and then the rest of the time is made up with superficial sleep, stage one and stage three non-REM sleep. So in the ICU patients, they're spending most of their time in the superficial stages of sleep, which would be stage one and stage two. 
and they're spending very, very, very little time in the deeper restorative stages of sleep, which would be non-REM stages three and four, as well as REM sleep. Now, there's some thinking that stage three and four sleep is where our growth hormone is secreted and that perhaps pain is increased if people are stage three and four sleep deprived. Do you find that contributing to some of the ICU problems? You're absolutely right. There are several cytokines and hormones that are intimately related to sleep regulation. And growth hormone is certainly one. Other cytokines like the inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-6, interleukin-1, TNF are also very, very important in the regulation of sleep. And interestingly, they're also very important in the inflammatory response that you get after an illness or an injury. So again, here we have our critically ill patients who aren't getting the extra benefits from good sleep. Correct. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Randall Fries. We are discussing the realities of sleep deprivation in the intensive care unit. I was in the hospital for an extended period of time with my last pregnancy, and I was not critically ill. I was on just the maternity floor, and I locked my door to keep the nurses out of my room because I could not sleep. And I was there for 10 weeks. I had to sleep, and they just would not leave me alone. Obviously, in the ICU, you can't lock your door. Right, right, exactly. And I think you've identified a common problem that most anyone that's been in the hospital can relate to, and it doesn't require an ICU admission. It's a very, very common problem. Everyone can say that I've been at the hospital and I could not sleep. And that is one of the things that we've identified is the provider or the healthcare provider's interactions don't allow the patient adequate uninterrupted time for sleep. And that is something that would be a part of an active protocol to promote sleep. And again, if we show in the ICU setting that promoting sleep is very helpful, well, then we can carry that over to the regular hospital ward. Exactly. And we have to all remember that the hospital is just not meant for our convenience. It's actually about the patients. And I viewed it as probably payback because when I was an intern, I remember going in early and waking people up so I could get my rounds done. And it was all about me, not about actually helping patients sleep through the night. I think one of the main parts about changing and addressing this problem is education education of healthcare providers is so important to get them to realize what we're doing. We think we're doing what's important and what's right. And, and most of the time we are. But sometimes, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the piece, that things are overlooked or not recognized. And I think we don't recognize when we're going in at 5 a.m. to wake our patients up and assess them that we're interrupting something so very important, and that's their sleep. So staff education, what else can we do? What about just in terms of the environment with uh, light and dark in the ICU, I would think would be a huge issue. Absolutely. Noise reduction would be a huge part of a sleep promotion program or strategy or protocol, if you will. And part of noise reduction will be addressing alarms. There's multiple alarms for different vital signs, or they're on the ventilator, or they're getting IV pumps, or a heart rate machine, or or respiratory rate machine, there's many, many alarms that we need to start thinking about new ways that would be less disruptive to the patient, but that could alert the bedside care provider that something is amiss. Um, lighting practice is very important. It's very important for the bedside care provider to be able to see, to care for that patient, but light also has a very important role in melatonin secretion, and melatonin secretion also plays an important role in promoting sleep. So if you shine light on the retina while a patient's trying to sleep, there's an abrupt, very rapid decrease in melatonin production, which then would affect our patient's ability to sleep. So, you know, keeping the lights dim 
in the nighttime, possibly putting blindfolds on our patient to shield their retinas from light activity during hours that we'd like to promote sleep. Another area that I always talk about is pharmacologic interventions. Sleep promoters, you know, medications to promote sleep is one arm under that broader category. And the other that we really frequently forget about is removing medicines that inhibit normal sleep. What do you find are the most common offenders? Well, in the ICU, benzodiazepines and narcotics inhibits normal sleep, but they're very useful in the ICU for pain control and sedation. So, you know, we have to use things judiciously. And one of the things I always tell the physicians that I'm training is you really should very closely look at the medication profiles and eliminate medications that are not absolutely necessary and minimize the ones you're using for sedation and pain control. So meds, educating staff, light and dark, anything else we can do to help patients sleep while they're in their unit? Well, we spoke briefly about another very important one, and that is, of course, patient care interventions or the interactions between caregivers and the patients themselves. And there's a lot of work in the nursing literature on clustering nocturnal care activities, meaning an astute nurse should before she goes in the room or he goes in the room to assess or deliver care, sort of cluster a group of things that they're going to do so they can minimize the times they actually go in and interrupt the patient. Also, patients that are on the ventilator, we need to develop ventilator strategies and modes of ventilation that are keep our patients more in synchrony. Having increased CO2 can cause problems with um, awakenings, just spontaneous awakenings in our patients. So we need to develop better ventilator strategies. Makes sense. Now, what's next for you? What future studies do we need to do? It sounds like this work is really in its infancy. Well, people have been studying sleep for a long, long time, but I'm trying to apply it to sleep in the setting of recovery from illness and promoting sleep in the sense of if sleep deprivation is bad for healthy people, it's got to be bad for people that are ill. Mm. And I always make a parallel to in the early 1970s in nutrition. We weren't able to, at that time, give our patients adequate nutrition because we didn't have parenteral nutrition available. And patients were kept NPO and without caloric intake for periods of time if they had gastrointestinal surgeries. And then suddenly when TPMs came available, it was widely used, and some of those complications went away. Uh, Length of stay was better. Wound healing was better. I make that same parallel. If we can just simply get our patients to sleep a little bit better, we may see a difference in outcome. And you asked me where I was going from here. I certainly would love to tell you that I'm trying to move forward with a sleep promotion tool, which I first have to validate. Before I can study it in a randomized fashion, I need to validate that we are actually doing what we think we're doing. And when we say we are promoting sleep, I have to demonstrate that we are promoting sleep. And that's going to involve another study with polysomnography. So put in place our tool and then study a series of patients with polysomnography. How hard is it to do PSGs on patients in the unit? It's not that hard. We have portable machines. They're actually quite small. We also videotape everyone because that's an important part of the polysomnography. Also audio recordings because you want to capture what could possibly be causing them to have an awakening when you demonstrate that. It's tedious, but certainly can be done. So PSG studies on patients in the ICU to try to figure out how much they're sleeping and if they're not sleeping, why? Exactly. And when we try to promote them to sleep by using this particular tool, the strategy or protocol that we've developed, is it actually improving their sleep? That's the major question. Because once we define that and validate the tool, meaning the tool is actually improving sleep when we use it, we need to then randomize people to get the tool or not and look at outcome. Right. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate your invitation. We've been discussing sleep in the intensive care unit, or rather the lack of sleep in the intensive care unit, with our guest today, Dr. Randall Fries. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months of free streaming internet for your home or office. If you have comments or suggestions, give us a ring at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. 